I'm Jody Nisnik, and you're listening to So Much More. In John 16, 12, Jesus stated, there is so much more I want to tell you. He then pointed to the spirit as the one who would come, who would further his teaching by bringing his word to life for us. So much more creates space for God to reveal his truth through his word. Well, today I'm excited to have Mark Matlock with me as we have a conversation around Exodus 7 and what the Lord is teaching him. Mark is a seasoned nonprofit leader. He is the founder of Wisdom Works, and he's the previous president of Youth Specialties. Mark is passionate about helping organizations adapt to changing times by turning research-based insight into impactful action. He's authored more than 20 books for parents and teens, and his most recent one is called Faith for Exiles, Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in Digital Babylon, which he co-authored with David Kenneman, who is the president of Barna Group. He is also currently working on a book with Peter Scazzaro, which is Emotionally Healthy Discipleship for Teens. I have to say, I'm disappointed that that did not come out a few years ago when I had teens, but I'm grateful you're writing it for all the teens out there. (laughs) And then you're also working on another book with Barna. And um, I also know that you have two adult children. And so one of the things that I did before we got on is I messaged both of them and asked them to give me a little dirt on you. And this is what they had to say. I'm just kidding. I didn't do that, but I'm really curious. What do you think they would say? I was excited to hear what they wanted to say. Um, you know, our kids know each other and, you. uh, you know, I've enjoyed having them over our house, but yeah. Um, yeah, it would be very interesting to hear what my, my kids would say off the record where I wasn't uh, sitting sitting there right next to them. But, you know, we've it's been really fun having adult children and unpacking their spiritual journeys. They both live in New York City now. Um, they uh, don't work in predominantly Christian fields. Uh, like I grew up working in, um, in uh, the work that I did, or they grew up working in around what I did. So it's been fun to see them see the impact of Christ in their lives that they maybe took for granted growing up. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so um, it actually, I think, took them getting out of the Bible belt a little bit to actually see the power of, of God at work in the lives of others. And even inside of them, that people mm-hmm. could see mm-hmm. something in them um, was one of the things that my, my daughter uh, Mar- remarked about when she first um you know, kind of started her journey uh, through college and stuff like that. So it was very interesting. Yeah. Well, they're great kids. I do know that they're not kids anymore. We can't call them kids anymore. They're great. I know they're our kids. (laughs) I know they are still our kids. That's true. That's true. Yes. Mark's son and my daughter Taylor are the same age and we're good friends. It was fun for them. Um, okay, so let's dive into this passage. And I was always kind of hopeful that they would marry. So, you know, it was a little disappointing when your daughter got married because I was kind of holding out. When I saw that news on Facebook, I was like, well, all right. We got to close the book on that one. Yep, plan two. <laughs> well, when this airs, she will be married. But as we're talking, it's eight days away. It's- so you're saying I have a chance. No. <laughs> 
I've spent way too much money on this wedding. <laughs> and also she's marrying the perfect person for her. And we're thrilled That's about so that. Awesome. She's it a great is. person. Thanks. All right. Well, let's dive into this passage. And before we do, I do want to give us a quick reminder. So I'm going to read it for us. It is Exodus seven verses eight through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. All right, Mark, so we did this as Electio Divina, really asking the Lord, just draw us in, help us notice what you want us to notice. So tell me where you went with the Lord. Well, this passage brought back a lot of memories. Um, One, because when I was... um, Younger, um, I was really fascinated with magic tricks like David Copperfield, David Blaine, Chris Angel, uh, David Carbonaro, people that you might be familiar with today. And um, and so because I played in these things, I would often have Sunday school teachers that would actually, when we'd come to a, this passage with Moses confronting the magicians, um, they would ask me to come up and do something. But as I listened to this passage today, I realized that I can't remember when the last time was that I'd heard this passage. Hmm. Um, you know, I'm sure it was probably when we had, you know, when a sermon series had been preached on the subject. But oftentimes this is just looked over or passed over to get to the plagues. Um, and uh, so it was really kind of interesting to come to it with an adult mind. Hmm. And so that was kind of just the first wave of things that came over as, as an adult, what is God saying to me through this passage? It's not about magic tricks. It's not a Sunday school fascinating story. Cause these are the kind of stories in Sunday school that were all, you know, a lot more like the comic book heroes that you would listen to, but to go, okay, Moses is a man of God. He's getting ready to confront Uh, a great leader about a very serious situation that's going to disrupt the social economic landscape of a nation. Um, I just heard it through a completely different lens. Yeah. And so that was, that. that was, that was the first thing that happened to me is I was just overwhelmed with kind of wonder about those things and trying to call my mind just to hear the passage. <laughs> right. Well, especially when you have such a baggage, so to speak, I mean, not necessarily mm-hmm. negative, but you've got such experience with this passage and it actually had played a role in your life. So what did the Lord help you notice this time? Well, you know, you know, you said the word baggage and I don't want to let that go because I think some of us that grew up in church, we bring a lot of baggage to to scripture. Yeah. And what we choose to read versus what we don't choose to read, um, how we read passages, 
the messages that we hear that are embedded in the text. Um, I think that's been one of my greatest challenges having literally like, I don't ever remember a time when we didn't go to church. And so to try to come at a passage from a fresh standpoint, that's what I really like about Lectio is that Mm -hmm. it really kind of gives you an opportunity to kind of like rid yourself of some of those filters. But I also realized that I have to play a little bit of a role to push beyond them. So um, the first thing that I thought about was the fact that God sent Moses with instructions. You know, when you perform this miracle, here's what you do. He didn't, he didn't necessarily expect Moses to improv his way out of it. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there were, there was some, there was some moral authority that went with the instructions they gave. And I think it's very interesting because, you know, we know later on in the passage, Moses is going to do something that God didn't instruct him to do in his own way of doing that. And it produces a result, but it's not the way that God wanted it to do, wanted it to happen. And so that idea of when we're, when we're taking the word of God, whether it be from the scripture or, you know, if we were to receive direct revelation, something I don't think I've ever had happen to me uh, that I'm aware of, but just the importance of caring for that and treating it with ultimate respect and authority, not twisting it, not manipulating it, but, but realizing this is a gift that's been given to us Mm -hmm. to affect others and, and change. So good. And I I think, you know, I keep thinking Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. They did exactly what yes. God told them to do. They yes. didn't deviate. Like you said, they didn't improv and it still had to be really, really difficult because they're going, like you said, they're, they're going before probably the most powerful man, at least in their, their world and getting ready to ask him to give up their entire workforce. <laughs> yeah. That's not an easy ask. And they, yeah. and they already know he's a hard man. And so here they go before him and they throw a staff down on the ground and it becomes a snake. It's just an interesting thing, but then the Lord, they do it just because the Lord has commanded them to do it. So, well, I, I even wonder if there was a part of them that said, is this thing really going to turn into a snake? Of course. Yeah. We're going to put the staff down. And what if nothing happens? Is everybody going to stand around and go, nice stick, Moses? Yeah. Um, So that even just the faith that it took to lay that down and believe that that was actually going to happen. Mm -hmm. That's pretty, pretty powerful. It is pretty powerful. And, you know, they had practice, so to speak. I mean, God had already shown Mm -hmm. him, hey, this is what you're going to do. So he did it. Now pick up, yep. pick up the snake by yep. the tail and it's going to become a stab again. Now stick your hand in your cloak and it's going to become leprous. And so he had quote unquote practiced these things, seen God do them. But I think you're right. I know me and I know my experience. I've seen God come through for me many times. And yet then when I'm faced at that critical moment, I wonder, is it going to happen again? Are you going to show up again? Yeah. Are you going to do what you said you were going to do? maybe I heard you wrong. (laughs) And so it happened in that place where you were talking to me, but now I'm in front of Pharaoh, somebody I'm intimidated by. Yeah. um, And you're, you know, I'm I'm now needing to do it there. Yeah. Yeah. I I like the idea too, what you just said about the fact that they had rehearsed it as well. And that, 
you know, there, there are a lot of things that God gives their disciplines so that we are ready to do them when we need them. Right. Um, so that when it is tough to apply that discipline, it becomes very familiar to us. And, uh, I think that's uh, an interesting insight that I just thought of as we were talking about. I think that's a beautiful insight because we do have disciplines. Like, why do we read our Bible? We read our Bible so we know who our God is. And so we have a relationship with him. We know his character. And then when things happen, like the plagues that are getting ready to happen to them, which are terrible and horrific things that, that come through the land and that the Israelites experienced also, when those things happen, we still go back to what we know is true because we've been in the discipline of knowing who our God is and practicing that with him. I love that. That's a great, great uh, take-home nugget for us all. We should just turn off the podcast here. That was great. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but we're not going to. So tell me, where else did you go in the passage? Well, the other place that God took me in this was... um, around the magicians. So now you've got these magicians and, um, you know, whether they were leaning on demonic powers or whether they were using some kind of sleight of hand trickery, like I grew up learning how to do and was actually, a you know, I, I made a living as a magician for many years, um, full time. And, um, you know, and, and I would always have people go, oh, my gosh, you know, like you, you must be have some kind of power. You must be connect. You know, like this is dark, the dark arts. Um, and when you don't understand the deception, it can appear that way. But the reality is, you know, these are much weaker forces than that. And so Moses comes in and uh, the snake that God caused to appear devours the other snakes. And it reminded me that there are a lot of things that we can do in our own strength um, that can look and achieve almost mm-hmm. the exact same effect as what God has instructed us to do. But God's way is more powerful. And it is, and I, I take, I read this from the fact that the other snakes were consumed. God's way endures. I think about things like, okay, let's, let's get out of the fantastical realm of snakes turning uh, sticks, turning into snakes like marriage. Um, When our marriages are in trouble or when we need some help there, um, there are a lot of different solutions out there for us to get help in our marriage. We can get that from counselors. We can get that by reading self-help books. Uh, There's a lot of places to get insights to health. But if those things aren't anchored in the word and the authority of God, will they last and endure? And will they produce a real effect that's accomplished through power versus um, something that's artificial? Um, You know, and we can, I I see this a lot um, in in Christian ministry. I, I consult with a lot of different organizations there are just incredible business out insights out there that I, I encourage people to use because they're, they're, they're best practices. They're uh, really helpful tools, but there's always this struggle to say, it's not the tool. It's the tool 
married with the power of God, you know, that's helping us accomplish this. And so to realize that we can mimic the fruit of God through what is false or what is not grounded in truth or through other techniques, rather than leaning into the power of God for everlasting change. I think that, that, that really hit me hard uh, that I've never encountered in this passage when I've read it in the past. That's really powerful. And I think it's such a truth that we're seeing unfold all around us. Sadly, it's heartbreaking to see how much fruit has been um, fake fruit, really fruit through our own effort um, has been out there and it's crumbling. It it rots basically um, because it's not real. It's mimicking the fruit of God. And it's oftentimes done in God's name. Um, and I think we're seeing, we're just seeing, it's very painful to watch churches fall and um, scandals come out and things like that. And I think it is because we're taking all, and I think everyone starts, like, I can't imagine any of people that are trying to serve God through vocation or calling start with the intention of producing bad fruit. But then I think the effort gets out in front of the the soul transformation work that God wants to do. And we just start relying on the tools instead of relying on the God who created the tools. And that that's where I, the fracture happens and it just starts to crumble apart. That's a really amazing insight that you pulled out of this passage. Oh, I mean, it's just so easy to trust in our own strength and our own abilities and go, oh, I can get the outcome that we need here. Right. Um, but it is the outcome that God want in the way that God wanted it. And um, I have a friend who uh, left the faith and became a, a secular chaplain. Okay. So a, a deity free chaplain wow. to uh, the atheist student union or club or whatever at USC. And he gave this message to them and he talked about, you know, why, uh, he was a part of church and youth group growing up. And he talked about the fact that it was because of community. It was because uh, it was helping me become a better person. Uh, it was a community of people working together to try to do good in the world. And he said, the reason why the Christian clubs are out fundraising the secular, I can't remember the name of it, uh, club. He said, isn't because you know, they have God and you don't. He, the case that he made was that they are providing community and an opportunity to participate and an identity that's more attractive. You're, you've become a debate club and nobody gives money to a debate club, but they will give money to an organization that help them find themselves. He goes, you can do that and you don't have to do it with all the stories that aren't true. And he was saying this, and, and, and he actually sent me a support letter asking for me to financially support him. And I, I was sitting there going, man, I really want to support this guy because I don't want this to fail because he didn't get funded. <laughs> I want this to fail. That's a great way to look at it. Because he, at some point he realizes, you know what? Those things, my identity, the community, the ability to do good in the world only happen because of Jesus. Yeah. Um, because of the power of God in our lives together, not just because we made those our objectives and our goals. And um, 
it was a very interesting, you know, thing to, to be confronted with. But I, I thought about that during the passage. He's looking for the outcomes of being a part of the kingdom of God, but he didn't want to trust in the power uh, that allows for that to happen. And to me, you can't, you can kind of get there, but it's not the, it's not the lasting thing. It's not going to really make the connection happen. Yeah. Well, it's a lot of effort, right? I mean, we can do a lot of striving on our own, but when it comes to the peace that surpasses all understanding, when it comes to the fact that we have just the spirit indwelling in us, you, you can't mimic those things. There are tools and, you know, I'm a firm believer. All truth is God's truth. There are really great tools out there and they're created by people that don't know Jesus. And yet without Jesus, they will come to an end. They will, they will all ultimately fall short because they're missing the secret sauce. (laughs) They're missing that thing, uh, which we know. I'm glad you mentioned that, that all truth is God's truth too, because you could misunderstand this to say, well, if it doesn't come from the Bible, then you shouldn't trust it. And I don't believe that's true either, because like you said, all truth is God's truth. He's the author and creator of everything that is true. So we can have confidence in these other truths that are discovered, but it's something about that, the uh, linking it to the person of Christ Mm-hmm. And his work on the cross. I'd love to know. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me that these magicians come in and they mimic what God's doing, as you've said. And the work that you've done is so much with the generations that are coming behind us. And the book that you most recently writ, wrote was Faith for Exiles. And in that, you talk about some practices that can help the faith of the next generation. So I'd love to know what are some of those things that you discovered that, you know, we can even lean into ourselves, but also cultivate in that next generation so that when the magic arts come along, you know, the fake God comes along, we can actually help equip this next generation Mm -hmm. to know, no, here's the real truth about that. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. So what we did was we studied 18 to 29-year-olds in the United States who had um, remained, uh, who had at some point in time in their life um, identified as a Christian. And so we found that there were kind of four groups. There was a group we call the prodigals that said, at one time I considered myself to be Christian, but I no longer do. We looked at lapsed Christians, um, people who said, I still identify with Jesus, but I'm not a part of a church. I don't really practice my faith, or I believe I can practice it outside of a faith community. Then we had a a third group that we called habituals. They were attending church pretty regularly, but when we asked them just basic questions about orthodoxy, you know, just, you know, the nature of Christ, the nature of God, things like that. They didn't really have answers for those things. They, they really were more attenders, not absorbers of that. And they also didn't see their faith as being central to their life um, or a, a part of what they do or why, they, why they're here. And then we had this group called Resilience, and they made about 10% of this, of this group. So a small number, 
And uh, they attend church with about the same frequency as the habituals, but they respond to those questions about basic Orthodox Christianity uh, correctly. They see faith as a central force in their life for why they're here. And they do believe that they're here to make a difference in the world because of their faith in Christ, whereas the, the, the uh, habituals don't necessarily uh, identify with that. What's interesting is that the larger group is the habituals and the resilience are a much smaller group, making up only about 10%. And so what we see in that is we want, we really studied that, that, um, that resilient group. We wanted to find out what, what, what are the things that make them different? What makes them stand out? So we asked all four groups, tons of questions about the homes they grew up in, the churches they grew up in what their internal experience of God was, things of that nature. And what we found in doing all of this profiling was five things. And resilience, we're able to experience Jesus relationally. So he wasn't a concept, he wasn't an idea, but they they had a connection to him. And when you compare the questions that we asked from the habituals to the uh resilience, and then the other two groups, you see huge differences between them. So it's like night and day. Mm. Now, experiencing Jesus is something that seems pretty basic. And when I would talk to pastors about this, they go, oh, we do that. And I go, well, but the numbers are showing something different, that people are coming to church, but they may not actually be experiencing Jesus, right? So really trying to understand what that is in their life and, and really helping them connect him. The second thing was meaningful relationships. And we kind of thought, well, maybe the habituals are coming to church because they have lots of friendships. But when we really dove deeper, we found, no, that really wasn't the case at all, that resilience actually had much deeper peer and intergenerational relationships than the habituals had. The third thing was cultural discernment, the ability to use the word of God to navigate the, the world around them, what they listen to with media and music, how they make decisions about how they live their lives, you know, sexually, morally, things of that nature. The fourth thing was vocational discipleship, which is kind of an unusual uh, coupling of words. But the idea was that they saw whatever they did for work as an extension of mission. So if they were into medicine or hospitality or whatever, they saw those ways of serving people healing people in the way that Jesus uh, did that. Um, the last thing was living in countercultural mission. And that was this idea that um, it's not that they were at war with the culture. And that's a real important distinction to make, but that living for Christ was going to call them at different moments to be very different than the way the culture was going. And, um, and so there was an expectation that I'm different. I've been called out to live differently in the world that I'm, I'm in. And it's been really interesting because we've actually taken the same profile and we've done, used it in about 25 other countries around the world. We're, we're learning a lot more about this group and where the concentrations are. No big surprise. We see a lot of resiliency in, uh, in Africa, uh, in, uh, among the African nations, um, Southeast Asia, that region, so the center of Christianity has definitely shifted out of the Western world and into those spaces. And there's a lot of really interesting things happening theologically, missiologically in those areas of the world. And this kind of, you see the correlation between those things. So how do we, 
help cultivate that in the next generation? How do we cultivate resiliency? Is it just leaning into making sure they have good relationships and and teaching them and telling them and, and reminding them of all of those things? Or is there something more? Yeah, I think a lot of it for me is, you know, when we come into church, a lot of times we do things, but nobody really says, so what was that? What was going on right there? Right. <laughs> and I found working with young people, just because they were showing up, that wasn't enough. I needed to really know what their journey was. I mean, I remember when I was uh, leading a small group of seniors at our at our church and I gave them an index card. I said, I just want you to write something on there that you want me to know about you that you don't think I probably would. And you don't have to write your name on it or anything like that. So they wrote it down. They stuck it in a box. I read, went home and read them. About half of them said, I pretty much don't believe any of this. I, I, but I'm just waiting to break the news to my parents when I graduate or whatever. I came back and just said, hey, I just want you to know about half of you said this to me. I don't know who it was and I don't need to know. But I want this to be a place where we can explore your doubts. And, um, and I realized how few places there are for people, especially those that have grown up in church to really be able to challenge things. So what does that do if there's, if church is no longer a safe place to explore doubt or to ask questions and to be curious, Mm -hmm. which is the subject of the new book I'm working on is on spiritual curiosity. But, um, when that isn't, there's not a safe place to do that and a way to do that in a way where you're not shamed for asking the question that you're asking and the follow-ups that come with it, um, you end up going to Google in digital Babylon. And when you go to Google, you're going to find some other people that will disciple you in different directions. And so rather than people of faith, being able to walk with a young person through this and helping them experience God, they're, they're, they're looking elsewhere. And uh, we, we type two words uh, onto the screen and it was screens disciple. Mm-hmm. And we realized that if we're not involved relationally and in community, discipling people, really helping them, are you experiencing Jesus? Are you, do you just believe in this story or do you experience God? Um, if we aren't really engaged with people that way, there's nothing nothing's happening. So, um, you know, they're, they're dying off and they're got their hand on the door. And I would say it's even getting compounded more and more. It's more than just the screens. It's the algorithm that's discipling, right? Because there's so many studies that show, you know, you get more and more extreme because you keep getting fed this niche information. So you Google about, Mm -hmm. I don't believe in God. Well, you're going to get it's just, you're going to keep getting down more and more narrow. You're going to get these very narrow fringe people that become your disciples because that's the way the system is set up and it's disturbing and frustrating. And we can see the results of how that's playing out as people just get more and more set in very narrow ways. Well, well you know, and being a minister yourself, you know, when we raise our kids, one of the hardest things to do is to realize just because I'm a minister... <laughs> Just because I'm a Christian right. doesn't necessarily mean that my kids are instantly going to get it and figure it out. And I've got to trust them to be on their journey. You know, and yeah. I have a friend who's a very well-known apologist and his son came to me and we were talking a little bit about his faith journey. And he said, yeah, he goes, when, when I hit about 18, I, I told my dad, um, I don't believe I don't know that I believe in in God. I don't know that I believe this is real. And I thought, 
what did your dad you know do at that moment right i was just curious because you know well-known author in the space and he said son you've got to figure it out that's how i found christ as i i figured it out and i'm here to help mm-hmm. he could have thrown the books at him he could have given him a lecture on all of the things that he knew you know to uh, all the evidence that demands a verdict Good. that uh, he had written, but instead he chose to, you know, give his son space to discover that and to support him along the way and create that safe environment. Now his son is a, a, a fan, a, an amazing apologist, mm. you know, mm. um, and the work that he's doing. So there's just a very, it's a, a very important thing that we don't freak out as parents and try to control it. Um, we've, we've got to kind of allow God to do his work in them, but to be there and to be engaging that along the way and to not expect outcomes in the timeframes that we're expecting. Oh, them. So good. So good. And I think even just remembering going back to the passage that God will make himself evident, right? So he consumed the false snakes there. There is but we have to open our heart. Pharaoh's heart became hard and that led to a whole journey, but we need to keep our hearts open. And I think you've done a beautiful job of even just encouraging me and the rest of us to be safe spaces for people to navigate those challenging conversations, because that's part of it. And to be the ones that are helping disciple that next generation. Well, Mark, there's so many other things I want to talk to you about, and we have come to the end of our time. And I just really want to thank you for creating some space to be with us and encourage us through your insights in this passage. So thanks for making some time for us. Yeah. Thanks for giving me the challenge to walk through this passage. That was a lot of fun. It was uh, meaningful to me. I walked away with some really powerful insights myself. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Well, I'm going to put lots of links in the show notes for how people can find you and even get this book if they'd like to read more and um, just as they're loving on the next generation. So also, I just want to thank you all again for joining me on so much more because we really do believe Jesus has so much more to say to us and we're creating space to listen. Are you concerned about tensions in the Middle East? Do you wonder where we're currently at in the biblical timeline? Are we really in the last days? Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Carl Muller with the Inside the Epicenter podcast. Every week, my co-host, best-selling author Joel Rosenberg, and I answer those questions and more. You'll hear inside knowledge of our meetings with leaders at the highest levels of government in the U.S., Israel, and the Middle East, equipping you to filter the news with biblically sound insights. Find Inside the Epicenter on your favorite podcast app or go to joshuafun.com to listen and subscribe.